Today's reading is Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24, and chapter 6, verse 25. It can be found on page 199 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his mes- this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they had come, where they had come from. At dusk, when it is time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men sat out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, 
The Lord has certainly given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men Joshua had sent as spies into Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. God of grace, we come into this room and we quiet ourselves. Maybe that's new for us this week, to to quiet ourselves, to sing, to consider words, uh, to give them time to soak into our life. And, um, And we come to try to do that and we come from different places. And our hope is that you would meet us, that you would speak in such a way that we hear and that we might be able to take the next step of faith or courage in our life, wherever we find ourselves, whether it's a place of being scared, being happy, um, being kind of bored with life, um, whether we feel like we're on our way towards belief or we're on our way out the door from belief, wherever we are. Would you find us in our mess, in our fragmentation? Would you meet us with your grace like you show us over and over again in Scripture? Do that now in such a way that our lives can be changed. Amen. Well, when I, this is a topic I've never uh, preached on before. I only have five years of experience really preaching on a regular basis. And um, so this still happens once in a while. My brain just starts firing as all these new doors are opening on a topic. So today we're talking about courage. And I realize, I mean, what a kind of big topic that we're all familiar with. And I've never really sat with it for a week and, and let God speak to me and, and try to figure out what it's all about. So I realized that um, courage for us, you, you might come with a sense that you could really use courage in your life and it would change how you would behave, you know, how you would go about this thing or that thing, maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe with family. You have some sense of a place where courage would make a difference. And I realized that um, for me, for everyone it's different. For me, one of the issues that, that even makes me, pastors tend to be this way, we're people pleasers. And so for me, courage would just be to just care a lot less what people think about me. I mean, it would just be like, so for example, in my life, you know, uh, in the summertime, the window in the living room faces the window of our neighbor's living room. And in some ways, courage would just be to, to not have that, like, that time of thinking about, now is the window open before what I, I, I say what I'm about to say to my wife or my kids? <laughs> in a sense, just, so what if it is? So who cares what they think, right? There's all these instances in my life where I would be so much better off um, if I just had the courage to not, you know, spend that time worrying about what people think about me. I don't know what it is for you. I'm sure there's some place in life where courage would make a difference. Maybe it's money. Maybe there's a sense, um, if you're in the Christian tradition, of this standard that you hear about a lot about of um, tithing, giving to God 10%, you know, sort of on the front end. It's super scary. Um, and give 10% before you pay the other bills and give that to God as an offering. It's not a legalistic rule here at City Life. That's not how we deal with it. It's a gospel thing, and you've heard me talk about that. But, but maybe for you, you look at something like that and you say, if I had courage, right, I would maybe 
just be able to do that? Where do I get that kind of courage? Where does it come from? And because I think what I've discovered as I've looked at courage this week, um, because I find it to be so important, I don't want to lose it in the shuffle of the story. I'm going to give you some, some courage truth right away on the front end here. This is what I want you to hear about courage, sort of like giving the answer on the front end. The Christian faith is a courage producer. Courage is when you persevere amidst a great challenge because you have, you're able to hang on to some higher ideal. It usually comes down to this. I may lose some things as I go into this, but something even greater is at stake. So I'm going to push into the challenge. That's courage. It may be an action outright. We usually think of brave actions, but it may, not, it may be not acting. That may be the courageous thing. Now, the gospel tells the Christian that Jesus was courageous. And so right away we think, well, yeah, okay, that gives us focus. Jesus is our model and our teacher of courage. But that's not actually what, how the gospel uh, teaches us on that point. He's not your, God, your courage model. He's your courageous savior. It's a big difference. Because what matters is not the courage he inspires in you. What matters is his act of courage on the cross. That's where um, he lost a lot, actually. But something even greater was at stake. And within the understanding of Scripture, it's very true to say, as Jesus said, no, I'm going to go into this, I'm going to lose this, what is at stake? Why does he go into it? Why does he go to the cross? bravely and not resist when they're saying crucify, crucify him. Why? What's on his mind at that moment? It's very legitimate to say, you were. You were. Just your, think your name, you know. I was on his mind at that point. Very legitimate to say that. So what he did, so this is just a little technical on the front end. We'll get into the story. He left the embrace of the Father in heaven and took your place on the cross of judgment so that you could take his place in the Father's embrace. Now, if your life, um, if you plant yourself in the embrace of the Father consistently over time, that makes a huge difference in your life. Living in the embrace of God's grace, you have nothing to lose because you have everything. So you have this endless source of courage. You live within God's forever embrace. So what do you have left to worry about? Some money, losing a little bit of money, losing some kind of dream picture of what you thought life was supposed to be, but circumstances aren't leading in that way. With the approval of others, you know, I say to myself, the, the rep, your reputation, what do you have to lose? Your parents' approval? So right here at the outset, we're talking about the gospel and courage. Um... And so I want you to understand this. When you're not being courageous because you're worried about losing some of these things, the problem is not your inner resolve. The problem is not trying harder. The problem is not your inner bravery or you're, you're not tapping your own resources. Your problem is that you're living too disconnected from God's embrace. Um, those who live in God's embrace over time have a sort of firm courage that is like, it's, it's not the kind of flare-up courage, you know, like the flare-up courage that you do for a promotion or to save face or because 
you need excitement in life. It's a, it's a variety of courage that's steady and sturdy, and it's there even if it's not being demonstrated by action. It's ready for when the time is right because you're in God's embrace. That's where courage comes from according to the gospel. Okay. I want to say that on the front end because our ideas culturally of courage are so strong in terms of it coming from our inner strength. So let's get into this story. This is a story of courage. The Israelites have been in the desert 40 years. They've been tested and taught that people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father in heaven. Now, they had been rescued from underneath Egyptian oppression, because, not because they were so great or because they were a special people compared to everyone else, but because God had made a promise to them that he'd be their God. And so when they cried out, he heard them. And he brought them through the Red Sea. The waters parted. This goes way back to the promise of Abraham and Sarah. I will be your God. When things were pretty bad, things were really rough, there was the Garden of Eden, but then um, it took a dark course, really, of complete reckless abandon. That's where we find the world when God breaks in and decides to make one promise with one people, starting with Abraham and Sarah. Okay, so involved in this promise is the land. Even Abraham is told about this, and they pass through, and he shows them the land. Well, now here we are so so much further later, and finally you open up the book of Joshua, and it's after 40 years in the desert. Those are over now, those 40 years of humility. And their leader is Joshua. He's the protege and replacement of Moses. And he's actually told, if you open up the first page of Joshua and you read the thing before what we read, he's told to be bold and courageous. God's talking to him. God's having a little one-on-one time with uh, Joshua, and he says, it, it jumps out at you if you're paying attention, that he says three times, it's the one command, be bold and courageous. And then he says again, be bold and very courageous. And then he says again, be bold and courageous. And then Moses goes and talks to his people and the elders of the people, and then the very last thing they say to him is, Joshua, did I say Moses in there somewhere? I might be mixing, sorry. But Joshua is talking to the people, and then they say to him, the people say to him, be bold and courageous. And then we get into this chapter we're reading here. Now, there's a lot going in, standing in the way of being bold and courageous for Joshua and for all of his army. Um, I mean, just take the idea that about half a millennia of time, half a millennium, I guess how you'd say it, of time since that, 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 you know, that Abraham promise and um, there's just sort of a credibility gap, I think, for these people here. Even on the issue of, I'm sure we've all heard the stories of the Red Sea and coming through it, but we've just known the desert and manna, not a bad miracle, the manna, the food every day that we have, but nothing like that Red Sea getting out of the clutches of the most powerful military. We don't know that, and now we're told to go in and he's gonna, we're going to overtake all these nations. There's a little common sense as well. There's the time issue of credibility gap. There's common sense. We're a nomadic people, really. We're going to go into all these well-resourced, well-experienced armies, and, and we're just going to take the land. God's going to give us the land. There's a, big, there's, a, there's, there's a big list of things that get in the way of courage as they go into this story. But, and so that's why it's like, Joshua, be very bold, be very courageous, and then so what he does is he sends in some spies into the land to figure things out. Jericho is this big imposing city. Where it's a fortress, and so he sends a couple spies in. That's the story we are reading about today. 
um, their game plan is incredibly flawed. I don't, they have no idea. These spies are so naive as they go about this game plan of how this is. They, they have no idea what they're doing. You know, the idea is go into the house of the, the prostitute. If there's a prostitute near the gate, go into her house. You'll just seem to be like a, a normal kind of traveler spending one night in this city and then moving on to the next, but you're actually going to spy. They're very naive. Um, not only did the officials of the city find out practically immediately that the Israelite spies were staying with the prostitute. Little did they know, she was on a first-name basis with these high-ranking officials. The king calls her by name, go get Rahab. So she was no doubt professionally in the service of Jericho's high society. They had no idea how dumb of a blunder it was. They, what they had just stepped into, this just incredible trap, how entirely ineffective of an approach they had taken. It was completely inept. Oh, except for how that prostitute behaves, except for what she does. Out of the blue, out from nowhere, this lowly, used and abused hooker risks her life to help their cause. She lies to the king's officials while the spies are hiding up on the roof above her. This act, if found out, would just bring certain death to her and her whole family. Traitors harboring the enemies in her own house? I mean, why on earth would she do that? It makes no sense at all. It just makes no sense. You've got to stop and wonder what is going on with Rahab. Why is she siding with Israel's king, their God, Yahweh, the God of Israel? She believes this God, who parted the Red Sea, will be able to save her family. She believes more in the ability of that foreign God than the ability of the king she knows on a first-hand basis, first-name basis. Why? So she ends up cutting a deal to save her whole family. She lets the spies out the window of the city wall, promising to, to leave a scarlet rope out so that her family's dwelling will be easily identifiable by Joshua's army when they return to take the city. The spies are able to go back, and this is the crucial piece of intelligence that they bring back. The report is that Rahab gives them that the kings of this land are terrified. The kings of this land have lost courage at the very sight of the people of Israel coming. And so the people of Israel have courage. Except it's interesting, they still have, there's a couple little things that just happen in here that um, just kind of got to list them quickly. One thing stands in their way of courage is that the Jordan River is at flood stage. So they come up to it, and what happens? But way further upstream, the river holds back somehow. God holds it back, and they, now they walk through on dry Now it's their story to walk through the water and God holding it back. That's building a little bit of courage, I think. The next thing I'm not really sure about, for some reason at this point, all the men born... Uh, in the desert, have to get circumcised. Um, I'm thinking this might have discouraged them a little bit. Just a guess. I don't know. <laughs> All their fighting men have to suddenly do this um, right after they've entered into the land of the enemy. So that happens, and then what happens next is kind of amazing too. Joshua um, sees an armed warrior who uh, introduces himself as the commander of the Lord's army, and then he gives the most bizarre battle plan ever to Joshua. It's absolutely nuts. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. This commander of the Lord's army says, go to, go to Jericho, you know, this well-fortified city, and um, 
for, for six days, just walk around it. Have your army walk around it once each day. And on the seventh day, get up really early, walk around uh, six times. And then on the seventh time, they, they, they follow these instructions. They blow the trumpets. They uh, shout after the seventh time. And the walls crumble. And the Israelite army takes the city. And they go in and they find Rahab's home. And they rescue her whole family. And their whole family is welcomed in as members of the people of Israel for the rest of their life. Rahab becomes one listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. So that's the story. There are actually two incredibly surprising sources of courage that this story brings right up to the surface. Um, they are this, God's methods and Rahab's belief. Um, before we get into that, though, there is something that um, I'm going to deal very briefly with because it might not be the questions you're asking. But there's something that um, we have to deal with because it often keeps people from hearing the message of courage in this text. And it goes like this. If you're interested in more, there's a sheet that I'm reading from that's available in the back, extensively dealing with this issue, and I'm not going to extensively deal with it now. It goes like this. When we read the stories of the conquest in Joshua, we often have this reaction. God clearly commands the Israelites to engage in warfare against the people of Canaan, often commanding complete annihilation of, their, of other people groups. This seems, first of all, more violent than we can imagine for a self-proclaimed merciful God. Second of all, often the violence and judgment seems excessive. And third, in modern-day terms, we can't imagine certain cases being described in any other way than genocide. Let me just point out two things about that, and then we'll move into the um, sources of courage. First of all, we're, um, we're suddenly with this issue of violence. When we read this text about, text about the conquest, for some reason we suddenly want God to superimpose what we know today and our framework of morality of warfare um, to, to be superimposed on the people, these ancient people. There's a sense in which if you ask anybody about what God must be like, you'll hear people say things like, I can't believe in a God who's deterministic. God must give us kind of free will. There must be this kind of way that God would, would not superimpose his, his will on the, on the goings-on of our lives. But then all of a sudden we read these stories and we say, why doesn't God superimpose our understandings of warfare on this ancient people? For example, we have the Geneva Conventions, we have the Universal or the Declaration of Universal Human Rights. We've only had them for like 64 years. Um, and we immediately want that framework to be planted. God, for some reason, is comfortable and patient to enter in, this is consistent in the Bible, to enter into the mess as it currently is but in a kind of subversive way that if you pay attention, you'll see the little hints pop up that show that he's entering into how it is now and there's a transformation at work. There's something, some greater thing at work that you're going to see incrementally, slowly, progressively building. For example, the idea of Rahab, this foreigner, being included into the people of Israel. Um, another example that... Um, that uh, from the book of Christopher Wright, which is highlighted on here, is the story of um, uh, the story of David. 
He says, it was customary in the ancient world for conquering generals to honor the gods that had given them victory to building temples or by building temples or statues in commemoration. So David's desire to build a temple to God might have been seen as the natural and expected outcome, yet we find the opposite. God unexpectedly blocks David from doing so, and among the reasons given was precisely the fact that he had been a man of war and bloodshed. The temple of Yahweh would not be built or characterized by such a life of violence. That's just a hint of some of the perspective you can have. I actually was going to say a little bit more, but I'll just skip it just for time reasons. So if you want more, um, go to this. And if you, I, I believe that if you can at least just kind of set those questions aside, deal with them in their place, you can hear something. First of all, God's methods. How do God's methods in the story surprisingly promote a kind of courage or engender a kind of courage in us? Well, I'm guessing that you can think of a time in your life when you've looked at a situation, you've looked at the circumstances, and you say, you basically said, uh, the route for good things to come through this are impossible. Um, there doesn't seem to be any good options. There doesn't seem to be a way through it or a way out of it. And uh, sometimes you might even imagine that God seems sort of backed into a corner, that God's out of options. Well, we have to hear some of the methods in the story because no one predicts Rahab. No one predicts it. You, you ever heard the, the Monty Python skit? No one, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? No one expects Rahab. I don't know why I had to bring that in. It just it sounded... No one expects... Rahab, no one expects it. Look, this is the deception of one powerless, oppressed soul in a woman, I mean, in this patriarchal society, she turns out to be like the nuclear weapon in, this, in God's mission going forward. Do you, do you have a sense, do you get the implications of this? The resources God has at his, his disposal God basically, if you think about it, he has undercover sleeper agents of grace everywhere, just scattered everywhere. You know, it's as if he just has to flip a switch or they get a call and they're activated. That's, that's Rahab in this story. No one predicted it. And imagine, how would you live differently? How would approach you approach your current issue of courage that you're thinking about right now? How would you approach that differently if you knew that? Without a doubt, Sleeper agents of grace are out there, ready to be activated by God. And what else happened? I mean, it's not just what Rahab, not just Rahab, but also what is the Israelite army in the end? What are they given to do that takes the city? It basically boils down to putting one foot in front of the other and walking and shouting at a given moment. That's it. That's, that's, that's what they're given to do. God kind of orchestrates this linchpin of, of Rahab the army, all they're given to do is put one foot in front of the other. How would you act differently if you knew? All you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and God will do the rest. We often think we need, it's all on our shoulders, we need some glamorous, courageous act is necessary. Maybe not. Those are God's methods and they give us courage, but there's also Rahab's belief. And what is at the heart of Rahab's belief? At the heart of Rahab's belief is she knows that God is for her. It's a profound thing. She knows that God is for her. And 
way that we all need to know that God is for us. Think about it this way. The people of Jericho see the dust on the horizon. They, see, they hear word about the, the Israelite people coming towards them. And then they get word in the inner court of Jericho. The, the high officials of Jericho get word, as, as Rahab does as well. They get word that this God, the God of Israel, is coming. And what do they do? The high officials of Jericho, the people in power, they say, we're going to die. Rahab says, he's coming for me. That's basically her response is, he's coming for me. She puts everything on the line, everything on the line in the way that means she's basically taking, if you're familiar with Christian language, it's a lordship issue. She's prioritizing one king over all the other kings she could do and her behavior is following. It's very courageous. It's ridiculously courageous. It's so full of risk. She could lose it all. How does she end up believing as she sees the dust on the horizon and hears about the God of Israel who parted the Red Sea? How does she come to that point of saying, that God is coming for me? It reminds me of another woman, not described as a prostitute, but described as a sinful woman who seems to have, in her interaction with Jesus, decided that Jesus was for her. In Luke chapter 7, this sinful woman is acting incredibly in just an embarrassing way. She's crying and wiping his feet with her hair and her tears, and then she takes out expensive perfume and is using that to, to anoint his feet. She is um, convinced. She's acting like someone convinced that God is, that Jesus is for her. And that she's acting like someone who's, like we talked about at the beginning, who's in the embrace of the Father and his grace. And so everything else, what does she have to lose? Reputation? She's probably spent her life burdened by reputation issues and just trying to run from them and trying to hide from them. And now she doesn't care. Why? What's happened to her? And money, she just, doesn't matter. Expensive perfume, I could sell it for money, but I, I know now that Jesus is for me. I've been ushered into the embrace of God's grace. And I think that there's something those two women have in common. Let's just summarize by the quote in the worship guide by, um, by John S. Dunn in The Reasons of the Heart where he says, One goes through fear to courage, it seems, through desperation and despair to hope. You know, there's a sense of, that Rahab and the woman, the sinful woman in the New Testament, there's a sense in which they know something about themselves that's true about all of us, says the Bible, that we're in trouble in the deepest way possible. They know it because God has brought them through the desert, in a sense. The desert of, of being oppressed, of being burdened by reputation issues. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the people of Israel go through 40 years of the desert before they hit their moment of courage because something in the desert makes you ready to, to know that you need God to be for you, otherwise you're not going to make it. You need to be ready to receive that information that God is for you. You need to... Um, there's a sense in the desert that 
Um, you don't know God is all you need until God is all you have. And so where are you? I think to get to God's embrace, he often takes us through the desert. I hope he doesn't have to take you through the desert, but he might. There's really only three, three places you can be. You've either gone through it, you've come out of the desert, or you're in the desert right now, or you're not yet there. So if you've come out of the desert and it's behind you, what do you do? Never forget. Never forget the desert. Never forget that, that lesson of the desert, that you are utterly dependent on God. You need God to be for you. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. If you're in the desert, just have hope. Know that you might, the, the most important spiritual work might be happening in your heart right now. And if you haven't yet gotten to the desert, pray that God brings you a desert. Okay, I don't know if anybody's ever prayed that prayer or not, so that might be too courageous for you. But at least pray that when it comes, you'll use it well, and you'll have a sense that God's at work. Let's pray. God, would you please be at work in our lives? We need so much courage, and we don't know where to find it. We don't, uh, we're not convinced that we're in your embrace. We're not convinced that the, when uh, Jesus left your embrace that we truly were brought into your embrace. We have many, many doubts that tell us that's not true. So help us to believe it and help it to bring a courage. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help in this. In Christ's name, amen.